Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti has resigned in protest over the Biden administration's mass deportation of Haitian asylum seekers. In a letter, the longtime diplomat, Daniel Foote, wrote, quote, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees. Foote also criticized the Biden administration's meddling in Haiti's political affairs, including its support for Ariel Henry as prime minister, following the the assassination of the Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse, in July. Foote wrote, quote, "'This cycle of international political interventions in Haiti has consistently produced catastrophic results.'" Foote's resignation came just days after U.S. Border Patrol agents on horseback were filmed chasing, grabbing and whipping Haitian asylum seekers who'd gathered in a makeshift camp in Del Rio, Texas. The New York Times reports the Biden administration has now deported nearly 2,000 Haitians in recent days. About 3,000 Haitian asylum seekers remain in the makeshift camps under the International Bridge in Del Rio, while thousands of others have been allowed to stay in the United States. This is Democratic California. California Congresswoman Maxine Waters, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, longtime advocate for the rights of the people in Haiti, speaking outside the Capitol. What the hell are we doing here? What we witness takes us back hundreds of years. What we witnessed was worse than what we witnessed in slavery. Cowboys with their reins again whipping black people. Haitians into the water where they're scrambling and falling down when all they're trying to do is escape from violence in their country. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Burke, and today we are speaking with Marc Francois, who is the public policy director uh, with the Haitian American Caucus. Welcome, Marc. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about some of the stuff that's going on uh, at the border in Del Rio, specifically with the Haitian immigrants, and then some of the things that led up to the situation that we find ourselves in right now. So, sure. so Del Rio's been making headlines the last couple of weeks uh, for some good stuff or some bad stuff. There's been a large uh, Haitian immigration camp there on the border town of Del Rio. It's in Texas. And we've seen up to like 20,000, 25,000 uh, Haitian immigrants that have landed there. Some of them are seeking asylum within the United States. Uh, we had a situation where some of the DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security Border Patrol, was using their horse reins as whips against them. So there's been a lot of drama there at the border. My understanding is that you have had boots on the ground there in Del Rio and have been able to witness some of these situations. Yeah, absolutely. So last week, you know, we saw, you know, I think it was probably Monday, Tuesday when we saw the pictures come out. I think it was Vice News that had, you know, the particularly visceral images of, you know, the, the Border Patrol agents on their horses riding into Haitian migrants trying to cross the river. Um, so on Wednesday afternoon, our, uh, our team started mobilizing. And then by Thursday afternoon, uh, our director, ex excuse me, executive director of HAC Haiti, our campus in Quai de Bouquet, he was on the ground with Councilwoman Farrah Lewis from New York and an attorney, Rita Pierre, um, as well as some others. And then we were working as well with Valverde in Texas. Um, 
the idea was really just to try to assess what was happening because it was it was apparent from the information that was coming out that little was being told to the press and very limited access given to press so um our team took a, a tour of the border facility on Thursday afternoon and started asking a lot of difficult questions. And when questions started coming up about the apparent lack of food, um, the COVID precautions and medical uh, access to medical care uh, in the facility, they got real quiet. They ended the tour. And by mid-morning on, it would have been, let's see, the timeline was that on Thursday, <clears throat> word started getting around the Del Rio camp that border patrol agents from both the Mexican and American governments were going to be raiding both sides of the camp. Cause that's something you have to understand is that um, there were, there was a significant camp, a sizable camp set up on the, on the Texas side of the river, but still outside the, um, the, the perimeter of the border patrol facility, there was a mirror camp on the Mexican side. So Mexican border patrol agents raided that facility or raided that camp on thursday and when word started getting around prior to that that sent migrants scattering to other villages towns other border stations and that's particularly dangerous because when these groups of haitians split up it creates a feeding frenzy for human trafficking so thursday morning the mexican border patrol sweeps their side of the camp and cuts the rope that had been strung across that migrants were using to stabilize themselves trying to carry food and supplies from one side to the other then on um, by Friday morning, by mid morning, the American Border Patrol swooped in and uh, detained and processed about 2,900 uh, migrants altogether. Roughly 2,000 or so, we're not exactly sure on the total numbers, were deported and sent back to uh, Port-au-Prince. The other several hundred were scattered about to uh, detention facilities throughout Texas, like San Antonio, El Paso, and Houston. And then a handful were released in Del Rio. And I want to focus on that for just a moment because they were being released with more or less just the clothes on their back, in some cases, not shoes. It was mostly just women and children. And what was being reported to us was that if their phones survived the trek through South America and Central America, it was confiscated by DHS. <laughs> That's really awful. And in fact, The Guardian reported on uh, September 24th, so just a few days ago, that the camp had been entirely cleared out with, um, they gave 8,000 of the immigrants were returned to Mexico and 5,000 were being processed here by asylum and that uh, there were also some that were put on a jet to go home. Alejandro Maracas, who, Maracas, I'm not sure if I'm saying it. Mayorkas, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary. Yes, yes. Uh, He said that at, that at the White House briefing that 2,000 migrants have been sent back to Haitia on 17 different flights. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds about right. Sounds about right to you. So what what, what could the United States be doing differently? Um, I, I'm actually curious to know what your thoughts are on how the United States has contributed to the problem. I don't know that they're necessarily alleviating it, alleviating it now. I think things are slightly better now under the uh, Biden administration than they were under Donald Trump, but certainly not hugely different. I think Biden you know, it's has- interesting. We're, we're actually not seeing anything different. And in fact, it's worse uh, it's in a lot worse. of regards. Okay. We, we have seen, um, uh, I saw a report that uh, uh, expulsions are up uh, about 70% under, under President Biden from President Trump. And, you know, the real, the real devil in all of this specific, I mean, this is, the, you know, the, the, the issue of Haiti is very complicated because the simple truth is that the American and European governments have 
more or less conspired and destabilized, conspired against and destabilized the Haitian government for the better part of 220 years. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's so many different things that are all interconnected, but specifically since 2020, since the outbreak of COVID, President Trump enacted an old piece of law called, or activated an old piece of law called Title 42. Right. And Title 42 was a public health code, not an immigration code. Pub Title 42 was giving DHS the opportunity and the ability to expel, that's an important term, um, they were expelling migrants under Title 42 without ever giving them the opportunity to have an asylum case or a credible threat hearing. And, you know, at the end of the day, these are not judges and lawyers reviewing these cases. They're law enforcement agents. Right. So what's happening is people are being expelled under Title 42 under the guise of COVID management. And... What's really nefarious about that is that Title 42 was enacted initially in 1944 um, in, in an effort to control the potential outbreak of disease from ships of refugees arriving from all over the world because of World War II. Now, refugees would not become a class, a legal class, until 1980. So to apply 1942, or excuse me, to apply Title 42 to refugees in 2020, fails to consider them as a legal class. And by bypassing all of that, you're, you're really going against, um, at the very least, the spirit of uh, international and American immigration and asylum laws that have been on the books now for you know over 30 years. And again, I'm not an attorney. We work with a lot of attorneys, um, but this is, you know, this is the information that's been shared with me and that, I've, that we've packaged from our own research. Right. No, that sounds about right. The 70% number that you're speaking of, is that um, in relationship to Haitian immigrants exclusively, or is that a broad base? I believe that's just total uh, expulsions, wow, um, irrespective of, of national origin, um, but I'm not wild. certain. I have not seen that number. Um, I do know that there's been a policy put in place post-Trump uh, with the Biden administration where they're actually sort of forcing parents to separate from their children at the border because they'll take the children in, but not the parents. And in many ways... That's more egregious than what was going on previously, because now instead of having the family unit separated by uh, Donald Trump inside the United States, they're forcing the parents to make that decision before ever reaching the border. And I don't think that that's much of an improvement, especially when the United States has had such a hand in creating a lot of these uh, immigration crises to begin with. We have to look at our foreign policy. We have to look at how uh, large business interests have sort of run the gamut mm -hmm. from the CIA getting involved in overturning, you know, governments, making things unstable, what have you. We have a history of this, uh, not conspiracy sure. theory. It's all pretty much uh, validated. So at some point, the roosters are going to come home to roost. And I think we're seeing that now, especially yeah. with the uptick in climate change. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, it's really nefarious what was taking place. You know, initially when Trump enacted Title 42, when President Trump enacted Title 42, um, it was inclusive of unaccompanied minors. And so Judge Ed Emmett Sullivan in the first district, or excuse me, in the DC district court uh, ruled in November of 2020, I believe that you could not apply Title 42 to unaccompanied minors. He's since followed up that ruling with a new ruling on, I believe it was September 16th. So just, you know, about a week or two ago, um, saying that you can't do that to families. Now, one of the things that we were seeing, uh, or at least that our people on the ground in, in Del Rio were seeing, was that the majority of people being released 
or women and children or elderly. <clears throat> and what that tells us is that what is potentially concerning is what they may be doing is separating men from the families and designating them as individuals, then expelling them under Title 42, which they're legally still allowed to do, and then designating, say, the wife and children as a family unit and, you know, then either funneling them into immigrant detention or outright releasing them on, say, humanitarian parole. Um, what's especially um, sickening about all of this and about the administration's conduct relative to Title 42 is that when Judge Sullivan ruled on the 16th that um, this, the, you know, you couldn't apply Title 42 to asylum-seeking families, he granted a 14-day temporary restraining order to afford the Biden administration an opportunity to appeal, and they are appealing. So, in effect, the Biden administration is trying to be able to continue um expelling families under title 42 without ever granting them an asylum hearing that's horrible <clears throat> i'm not surprised though uh so let's talk about some of the circumstances that brought us uh to this place you know haiti has had you know they've been the the uh, victim of multiple uh, environmental disasters at this point sure uh, you know we have earthquakes we have other climate change catastrophes catastrophes that are happening and i think that's driving part of the immigration outside of the um outside of the island. Uh, what do you think can be done about that? Sure. You know, it's it's a number of different things. Going back to the 2010 earthquake, you've had a couple of different disasters now since, whether it was Hurricane Matthew in 2016 or the most recent earthquake in August of this year or the tropical depression that immediately followed. None of these natural disasters have ever been appropriately addressed and the Haitian people never made whole because they weren't whole when the things happened. Right. It's been a continuous onslaught of economic, diplomatic, military policy by a number of nations led primarily by France and the United States um, that have shackled Haiti as a nation. They, you know, they had the audacity to liberate themselves from their slave masters. And so the, the global powers that be found ways to reshackle them through trade policy or through, you know, reparations to slave masters, which was collected by the French government into the 20th century. And then the debt was later sold to Citibank and collected on by American bankers. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the reason, I mean, there are so many things that are offensive about this situation, but the reason I think that's an important and salient discussion right now is because Larry Elder, who was just running for governor in the state of California, I don't think that he's done with politics. I think we're going to see him again. Um, I'd be very surprised if we didn't. Exactly. So one of the things that he has said, which is shocking, was that he thinks that reparations should go to slave owners because slaves were property and they lost their property, which is... Yeah, he I saw that interview. He cited the example that I believe reparations were paid to British slave owners when they, when they abolished. And... <laughs> It's shocking to me. I mean, sounds on brand for for Mr. Elder. It sounds on brand, and to have France doing this exact thing is really shocking to me. The people that deserve the reparations are clearly those that were held in bondage against their wills. Their their work is what built this country. Their work is what created um, a viable economy for France in Haiti. So sure. they were never they have never been paid for that work. And to try to turn the table around and say that the 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 people that were guilty of doing something really immoral are the ones that de deserve to get reparations is just a shocking um, statement but it, apparently 
this is not um, something that has gone unchecked in the past. So um, no, when you talk about going unchecked in the past, it literally goes back to you know sort of the infancy, toddler, adolescence of the of this country because um, free black Haitians fought for uh, the for the French in you know by proxy the Americans. Uh, at the Battle of Savannah, it was a losing battle, but Haitian ba Haitians are, are historically recognized for having participated in the fight against the British then. And then when, you know, France was trying to, to reinvade and reestablish slavery in the colony, because at the time Haiti uh, became a nation and, and, and ended, and ended their own slavery and liberated themselves. Um, it was the most valuable and wealthiest colony in in the Caribbean, it was known as the, you know, um, Cap Haitian was the, the Paris of the Antilles. So, you know, going back to, <clears throat> you know, the early 1800s in, in Haiti's infancy as a country, we had opportunities to to stand in, to give them opportunity to, to help build a nation. And the prospect of news inciting riots among our own slaves and uprising among the United States' slaves led you know that coalition of politicians at the time to side with france and that line has continued right up until the present day oh absolutely very on brand for the united states empire i think in many ways um, so let me ask you this there has been also a bunch of corruption surrounding ngos when it comes to dealing with some of the catastrophes in haiti mm -hmm. i'm thinking off the top of my head the surrounding of the um, containers that were sent for temporary housing where the clinton foundation had been involved i mean there's been sure. one thing after right. I red cross them, raised a billion red dollars cross, and built six yeah. houses that nobody lives in Right. So this is what I call disaster capitalism, because this is the idea now where American business can profiteer off of somebody else's misery. So are they really there to actually provide help, much needed help to this nation, or are they there to try to make money off of their pain and suffering? Um, and I think it's I think it's the latter. That's my strong opinion. Uh, what what is your stance on that? No, I think it's I think you're absolutely correct. You know, during uh 2010 was the first time sort of this generation had a, a Haiti disaster, you know, that um, mm -hmm. many of the people that were coming of age would not have been old enough to remember the fall of the Duvalier regime and, you know, the Aristide transitions and all of that stuff in the early 90s and certainly not things before that. So this was the first time Haiti kind of thrust itself into the forefront of everyone's thinking and people, you know, really looked at Haiti for the first time in a, in a broad kind of way, and they wanted to help and they wanted to get involved. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, these large corporate NGOs, um, the Clinton Foundation, the Red Cross and others, you know, they get in there, they raise a bunch of money, they have a bunch of telethons, they, you know, they all pat each other on the back. And at the end of the day, Haitians are no better off than they were, if not worse. And so one of, one of the many things that we're doing is, uh, you know, we have our own relief effort that we're working on. And unfortunately, you know, the immigration issue and the relief issue are inextricably linked because you're talking about a country that is currently reeling from two, you know, basically simultaneous natural disasters, um, which was immediately, uh, you know, immediately preceded by the assassination of their president. So you have a country with no head of state dealing with two natural disasters that they're not fully equipped to deal with. And now we're sending tens of thousands of 
migrants who have no cultural ties to the island, no community ties to the island, excuse me, not cultural, community ties to the island. Most of the people that have been at the Del Rio camp and other, you know, along the Texas border have been living in South or Central America for upwards of 15, 20 years. So uh, in some cases may have left because the bulk of their family died in a you know previous disaster. So we're sending people to Haiti that have no reasonable means to support themselves there. Their life was in Brazil or Chile or Panama. Right. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because that's also a salient part of the conversation. So these folks, they had what you could more or less refer to as a pit stop in other countries before they came to Mm -hmm. our border. What is Mm -hmm. driving them to stay in Brazil for 15 years and then make their way up to the United States? Sure. You know, uh, at different times over the last 20 years, various South and Central American countries have been more welcoming to Haitian migrants, asylum seekers and refugees than uh, the United States, particularly since, you know, 9-11 and and our, you know, our pretty continuously more stringent border policy since. Mm -hmm. So the United States was a very difficult destination to get to. A lot of people for sake of mobility, being able to just, you know, get going would go to Brazil or go to, you know, other countries that would be more welcoming with the idea being to save up enough money to eventually make their way to the United States. Okay. So it was just intentionally a pit stop where they could save up money. I was Mm -hmm. wondering if having maybe the Bolsonaro administration there, he's, you know, pretty fascist and against immigration. I think we've had changes um, in governments across the board in some of these. Well, yeah, and that's been driving a lot of the um, northward migration recently. You know, some of the, you know, I think one of the last numbers I read was that like Panamanian government had reported seeing roughly 20 to 20 to 30,000 Haitian migrants um, moving through this one particularly treacherous set of jungle. Um, But yeah, there's a number of countries in South America that had been previously welcoming to Haitians are now making their work permit visa asylum processes much more difficult. Um, And that is driving Haitians out of those countries and towards the U.S. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So what are the more of the broad based goals then for the Haitian American caucus right now? Is it to provide more relief to the island? Is it to help with the immigration to come to the United States? Is it to change the underlying foreign policy that the United States engages in that has been a root cause for some of this? What are what are some of the broad based initiatives you're working it's, on? It's kind of a lot of that. It's, it's kind of all of that, actually. Um, <clears throat> so the you know, our primary function is that we operate a school in Haiti just outside of Port-au-Prince in Guadalupe. So our primary goal is always going to be to educate, to feed, to enrich and uplift our students and give them all the, the most opportunities that we can. So, you know, in the scope of all the civil unrest, natural disaster, and now how the immigration crisis is compounding that, um, one of our greatest goals, our biggest goals is to just try to create a sense of normalcy for our students and give them a safe and reliable place to go every day. So that's, I would say, objective number one. Objective number two would be financing our emergency relief project for the southern departments of Haiti. Um, departments are what they call states or provinces in Haiti. So I'll just, I'll say departments quickly and easily. Um, but yeah, so the southern departments of Haiti were the ones most seriously devastated by the quake and tropical depression. So we're in the process of constructing um, eight containers that will be refitted to be clinics, shower and bathroom facilities, as well as general storage and shelter 
um, that we're working to deploy down in Lakai. We have a property there where we, uh, where we have a garment mill as well, where we like make our school uniforms and whatnot. So we're looking to deploy those containers there and then lead teams, of doctors in partnership with Sycamore independent physicians in Alabama to uh, staff the hospital or excuse me, to staff the clinics. And then our long-term goal would be to build a, a clinic and nursing school at the site in the Kai as well. Um, immigration truthfully is an area that um, we were not as hands-on with previously. So one of the things we are working to build right now is a coalition of aid organizations, um, NGOs, attorneys, churches, and others who are uh, working to serve the Haitian community that is being released into the United States and the rapidly growing Haitian communities in Mexican border towns like Nogales and Tijuana and elsewhere where these major border stations are, where Haitians have not been allowed in for, 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 for you know, going on at least 18 months, if not longer. You know, it's been, it's been an immigration slog for a long time, but the Title, 20, uh, Title 42 stuff is really only since 2020. Right. So let's talk about the Mexican participation in this. You mentioned earlier that Mexico had also participated in emptying out the uh, Mexican side of the Del Rio camp. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is a lot of the folks that did not get processed into asylum in the United States were uh, returned to the south of Mexico. Is that is that accurate? Um, to the best of our understanding, yes, that's that's partially accurate. So, so you know, <laughs> the. But, you know, it, the thing I, I'm learning about this is kind of everything that you've heard has happened to a couple people. It isn't necessarily the one thing is happening to everybody. Right, um, right. So, yes, you okay. did have uh, a number of Haitians who were apprehended by Mexican Border Patrol, either at the camp during that raid or within, you know, more within the interior of Mexico as they were looking to move around and kind of work their way back up to the, the U.S. border. And yes, it's my understanding that if they are apprehended by Mexican Border Patrol, they will be uh, deported or expelled or whatever term the Mexican government uses to yeah. their southern border. Which is a problem because now they've trekked all this way. They weren't uh, feeling at home or safe in the country they were at before. So where do they go now? Sure. Um, and you're and I'm just shoving them over the line into Belize or elsewhere. Like, what is that accomplishing? Not much. Yeah. Not much. You know, it's really unfortunate. So what do these folks do if that's the case? Um, is there a way to provide start over? Start over. Yeah, I guess that's really wow. I, can't I mean, it's, it's it, yeah, it, it is kind of bleak in that way. Bleak. And, you know, I would say that, you know, a lot of our work is providing exceptionally basic services. Like we rented an RV and our team was driving around Southern Texas, trying to chase down migrants being released from camp to camp so that they could get a meal and a shower because they had not bathed in weeks because they were sleeping in goat pens in the dirt with no shelter in 120 degree heat, no floors, no masks, no medical protocols. It was literally a chicken wire fence in the dirt under a freeway overpass. Really, it's weeks. amazing that we expect people to live this way. Where's our humanity? I hear these stories and it always slays me. It just kills me emotionally. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about California. Uh, has California been any friendlier in when it comes to immigration with these folks at all? Or have they just ignored the entire situation? Because we do also share a border, you know, obviously with Mexico. And I know that you know, Homeland Security has had a station down there where they were expanding the wall under Trump. And it was right where the Pacific Crest Trail was there, close to San Diego, outside of San Diego. Mm -hmm. 
Um, how has that been? Have you guys had any? Uh, it's Story been sort of sort of a, almost a quiet indifference. It's more like okay. if you can get in and hide, you know, sort of the you can live the life of an undocumented person in California. Um, but, you know, one of one of the extreme disadvantage, extreme disadvantages any Haitian is going to experience coming into California, as opposed to, say, somebody from Central America, is that unless they speak Spanish uh, or right. English, right their ability to communicate and find community and blend in and avoid federal agents is is going to be severely um, handicapped. And they are not going to be able to establish a life and kind of get a foothold here. And that's one of this was said more like as an opinion, but um, I was told by an immigration attorney that, you know, one of the goals of uh, that, as, as she's come to understand it, a border patrol is just to make it exceptionally difficult for migrants because a lot of times they'll self-deport. Yeah. Oh, God. We are headed for a disaster with that, too. I, I don't see any of the uh, the underlying factors that are causing mass immigration. There's a tension there. It's increasing. I don't see anything being done to alleviate those causes, whether it's climate change or foreign policy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank you and our ranking member for this hearing. It's, it's long overdue, uh, but now I understand why. It's very uh, clear to me, Mr. Noriega, that first of all, um, we have been involved in the process of, of destabilizing and undermining the government of Haiti over the last three, four years. It's also very clear to me that, um, and, and it's your stated policy or this administration's policy that regime change is, is central, a central component of its foreign policy, and it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Just so happens in, in Haiti, uh, it was planned in this way, working with the murderers and the thugs uh, and, and those uh, paramilitary groups to achieve what you had planned from day one, and that is a coup and overthrow of the government of President Aristide, the duly elected president of a black nation of eight million people, the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. I think your testimony today confirmed that for me. Let me um, also indicate that uh, it's very important for me to just ask you about the safety and security of President and Mrs. Aristide, because we've called the State Department just to ask them to put us in touch with them and it's my understanding there's no U.S. Embassy in the Central African Republic, nor um, is there a way to really, uh, at least for, for us to know what is transpiring. So I just want to make sure from your point of view that you're ensuring uh, their safety and their well-being. Next, I'd like to know, just really, Mr. Noriega, when did you decide um, that Mr. Aristide had to go? And what did you do to make sure that that happened? And I ask you that because I wrote to Secretary Powell on February 12th, and I said in this letter, uh, let me just read one paragraph. I said, and this was February 12th, I must say, Mr. Secretary, that our failure to support the democratic process and help restore order looks like a covert effort to overthrow a government. There is a violent coup d'etat in the making, and it appears that the United States is aiding and abetting the attempt to violently topple the Aristide government. With all due respect, this looks like regime change. Now, Mr. Noriega, there were a series of questions I asked the Secretary of State. He has not responded yet. Maybe you can. One, does the State Department support the democratically elected government of Haiti? And what practical steps is our government taking to support the democratic process? 
Secondly, is our, is our country supporting and sanctioning an overthrow of the Aristide government by giving a wink and a nod to the opposition? And I said to the Secretary that there are reports that we are covertly funding the opposition. Thirdly, I asked, does the United States support the CARICOM proposal and will we work through the OAS to broker a peaceful solution, not an overthrow of the Aristide government? Finally, I asked, is it true that Haitian opposition parties and leaders have received USAID funding? And Mr. Secretary, I think it's very important that these questions be answered truthfully because um, many would like to believe the Secretary of State. Um, I know recently he said that some of us, uh, some of our statements are nonsense. There have been reports that we're buying into conspiracy theories. But I also think it's very important uh, to ask these questions given uh, the facts that the Secretary of State made and the uh, presentation he made it at the United Nations with regard to the weapons of mass destruction, with regard to Iraq. It's very important that we know the truth. And I'd say that it's at this point uh, important to answer some of these questions that we've been asking today, because certainly your testimony today uh, begs the question, just when did we plan this and how did we see this uh, being executed? And I'd like to hear from you on that. Right. Well. Uh Congressman. I wanted yeah. to ask you, since um, since you have a caucus and you obviously engage in trying to get con congressional members on your side uh, to support some of your stances, mm -hmm. have have members of the squad or any of the progressive Democrats, have they had open ears to anything you've said to them? Where are they standing on this? Because I don't see them discussing this particular issue very often. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I have connections. I don't. I've not spoken with any members of the squad, and I don't have them on <laughs> speed dial or anything like that. Um, if if you'd like to talk, ladies, I'd love to hear from you. I would actually very much enjoy that. Um, but no, we do have we do have a number of legislative relationships, including in the for, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and they have okay. been reaching out to us and working with us, um, as well as our relationship within the New York City Council and, and State Assembly. Our organization is headquartered in Brooklyn. Um, I am our, our lone West Coast representative. So a lot of our um, our political relationships are going to be in Albany and in Manhattan. Okay. Um, but yes, we do without, without naming names, there are a number of legislators that we are working with on this, that we are sharing all of our, our position papers with and, and trying to arrange meetings to get action from whether it be the Foreign Affairs Committee or just getting them to make press conferences, try to compel the administration. Because, you know, at the end of the day, within immigration policy and foreign policy broadly, the, um, the most that can be done on the issue of immigration and and taking measures to put humanity back into the process right that falls on the shoulders of the president almost exclusively understood and so this you know i don't have a problem saying president biden really needs to take action there's there are a number of incredibly inhumane policies that were <clears throat> that have been a part of our system for a long mm -hmm. time through a number of presidents, including his, you know, his former boss. However, right. it's time to just start using the powers of the presidency to make it right. Stop pointing fingers, stop saying Trump did this or Bush did that or Obama did it. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. Just, just fix it. Yeah, just fix, fix it. it. Well, let me ask you this. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that there hasn't been a massive sea change in underlying personnel at DHS. A mm -hmm. lot of the players that were there under Trump are still there. Why? Why is that, in your opinion? You know, I 
I would love a great answer to that question myself. You know, I had very high hopes with everything that I heard on the campaign trail from both um, the vice president and the president, both ind independently and as a as a shared ticket. Um, and as Secretary Mayorkas has assumed his role, I, I personally cut him some slack in the beginning. You know, it, it, he seemed to be doing a lot of hand wringing and 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 seemed to be sort of um, confounded at the degree of lawlessness that was it was taking place both within ICE and Border Patrol and sort of DHS broadly. Um, but we're now, you know, nine months into this administration, and he seems to not have a handle on it, and seems to be as shocked and saddened as the rest of us by the conduct of these Border Patrol agents that are his employees. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd really like a good answer as to why more hasn't been done within DHS and why um, more, you know, they all acknowledge that, you know, whether it was under Secretary Nielsen or others that DHS, ICE, and Border Patrol were running wild. Well, yeah. what oh, have you definitely. done to rein them in? I well, that's exactly right. What I has can't he done? Very, very reasonably or very easily answer that question right now. Yeah, neither can I, and I'm dumbfounded by it because I actually, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Biden. I'll be frank and honest with you. I don't think he was the best pick of the litter when it came to the Democratic primary. Um, I don't think that's going to be shocking for a lot of my listeners. Um, I supported Bernie Sanders. That's the truth. But I did think that there would be a sea change of some sort within DHS when he took office. I did think that mm -hmm. the the Democratic Party, you know, they campaigned on this idea that, that you know, there's problems there. We don't want to be like Trump. Um, we don't want to be yeah. separating families at the border. The we previous administration was both so cruel and so unqualified in all of its leadership across the board that, you know, I, I had a lot of those same hopes. I figured that, you know, geez, just by having adults who are qualified to hold the positions that they're being appointed to, we've got to be, you know, markedly better off than than we had been the previous four years. And I'm very sad to say that I don't see any evidence of that. No, I don't see any evidence of it either. You know, one of the things that came to fruition under the Trump administration that was particularly disturbing was that he appointed a lot of folks at DHS that came from John Tanton's organization. And for folks mm -hmm. that don't know who John Tanton is, I think this is worthy of a discussion right now. John Tanton was a, a white nationalist. He was very much anti-immigration. He was not just anti-illegal immigration. He was anti-immigration. He believed that the United States should be a white country. Um, he even went so far as to try to lobby to get, you know, part of the Constitution changed where there would be no birthright, right? So if you were born here in the United States, if you were brown, you'd have no birthright. So uh, extreme positions. He would correspond with Nazis. You can read all of this in the Tanton papers. I've written about it. But Donald Trump appointed people into key positions at DHS that were from his organizations, which is alarming as hell, right? This is something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But some of those folks are still there. I don't understand this. Like, I look at that situation, and if I was a Biden presidency, part of the Biden presidency, one of the first things I would have done is done a complete and clean sweep at DHS. That's, that's absolutely what we'd like to see, too, because, you know, the, the, the simple truth is that it's exactly what you said. You know, you have an agency that, I mean, really, when you get into the history of the Border Patrol going all the way back to, you know, Texas becoming a state and, and very early on in its history, this is a, a 
an agency that regardless of whether they were under the Department of Justice or under the Department of Homeland Security or who's run them or how they were structured has been an agency that has been um, right, just ripe for corruption, cruelty, um, death. And, and the trampling of people's rights. And, and the worst thing is that it is people who are among the most vulnerable uh, in, in our society. You know, you're tired, you're hungry, you're tired, you're, you're poor, you're huddled masses. That's exactly who's the Border Patrol shooting at. Yeah, it's fearful. And, yeah, and, and this is, you know, this is a 150-year-old problem, frankly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I yeah, I would, I would, we, I and we would very much like to see uh, both the Secretary of Homeland Security and the President kind of, run down that roster and really start doing a lot of house cleaning and and restructuring of not just the people, but the whole way in which they conduct their immigration in a side. Yeah. I I mean, I would rather see it personally as either a state department issue or a health department issue, because this is the question of people coming here and needing food and shelter and clothing and, and, and medical care is not an enforcement problem. We're not being invaded. We don't. I need, agree. Yeah. You know, That's the way they frame let, it, though, for a long time. Yeah. Now. This <laughs> is an invasion of, of wild and angry people who are going to come here and, and overturn our country. When you know, there's that's, no a evidence line, to support that. that's a line from a, a French book that was anti-immigration that has been. Yeah. I mean, just it was propaganda that came out of the early 20th century that has yeah. just been so badly and poorly recycled. It's like it's just so cheap. It's it's yeah, it's like neo-Nazism just repackaged a different way over and over again. Um, really interesting that, that that hasn't changed, though. It's really, to me, a bad sign of where we're headed as a country. Um, let me ask you this. What ways can people help the situation? Obviously, they can't do anything about the Border Patrol. When they see these videos of these agents, you know, um, using their reins as whips against these guys, it's like it's horrifying, right? People get horrified when they see that. What can they do to help? Is there something that mutual aid they could provide or um, some other way that they can help uh, change the situation in your opinion? Sure, absolutely. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't invite all of your viewers and listeners to go to hacglobal.org. That's our website. Again, that's hacglobal.org. We have all the information there about our various efforts, programs, and initiatives that you can um, get involved with to take action, become a member, and learn more about our work in Haiti and for the Haitian community in the United States. So that's one. Um, One of the other things is when you see these horrific and and you know punctuations in the news um speak out get loud get on your social media tag news agencies tag politicians they may not see it but their staff will and the thing is when a bunch of people get like it's going to be very difficult to engage people broadly with Haiti because it's a very difficult issue that a lot of people don't understand. And I don't, I don't, don't pretend to, to underestimate the, uh, the, the, the gravity and the size of that. But specifically when you see these opportunities, that's when you need to speak out and, you know, whether it's a disaster or when you're friends with somebody like me in your personal life, who's telling you that you need to be mad about Haiti, like yeah. post about it. Tag your politicians, tag your representatives, tag news agencies, all your legislators. 
get active and get loud because if they get a couple of dozen calls, you know, if there's a day like there was last Tuesday where we see these really terrible pictures and all of a sudden your local congressperson or city council person gets 10 or 12 calls about it, yeah. they're going to dig into it. Right. Because it's going to tell them that this is going to be a larger problem that's not going to go away. And if we do that every time, we might start to see some action. Indeed. I'm also a big believer in giving camera phones to everybody that's in a marginalized community because really every time people see phone camera footage shot by somebody in one of these um, situations or in one of these camps, one of these, um, you know, various, even like Gaza, we could even talk about that. Uh, I think people need to see what's going on firsthand and phone camera footage has, has really enabled us to do that. And it's what's sort of shifting the conversation on what's to be done. Well, about and these. Department of Homeland Security is not the only one that does this. I mean, anybody no, they're not. that they're would absolutely not. Do yeah. harm if you're if you're traveling that journey, whether they wear a badge or they represent some sort of nefarious enterprise. Uh, first thing that's going to get taken is your phone every time. That's right. For that's that true. exact reason. Yep, that's true. What are your parting words, Mark? Um, I know you sent every um, gave us your website for people to go and check out, but I know you have also um, specific programs that you are raising money for. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, domestically, I want to highlight our workforce development program mm -hmm. in New York, offering uh, training and access to clean energy construction jobs for New Yorkers. We're currently set up in Brooklyn and the Bronx with a workforce development center coming soon in <clears throat> excuse me in queens we invite you to again visit hastglobal.org to learn more about all of our programs but so our workforce development program in new york is one of our more immediate ones and then our clinic and hygiene project for the haiti southern departments and that includes direct relief as well so supplies food you know kind of everything but we're trying to build and outfit eight shipping containers to take to lakai to help set up a community healthcare hub there to be able to provide medical care. And, uh, you know, there is unfortunately now that we're a month and a half removed, still a lot of acute care needs that have not been addressed uh, in the Southern departments in Haiti, but we are transitioning to a lot of chronic care. Um, so sponsorships with healthcare companies that can help us provide pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. And one of the things that um, I want to really stress everyone is as you're reaching out and wanting to do aid, you know, don't think about just dropping supplies or, you know, putting, you know, just sending off a quick Venmo. Really think about where your money is going and ask the question, is the organization that is doing this work, are they working through Haitian locals that are doing the work on the ground or are they doing things that are going to ultimately end up kneecapping the Haitian economy? Because that happened a lot in 2010 is you had, say, a shipping container full of medical supplies arrive in port, and maybe it did get distributed, but you just put a local out of business. I see. So maybe instead of mm -hmm. dropping, you know, the supplies for distribution, we coordinate getting them to the businesses in Haiti that can then uh, build their economy off of the relief as well. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. Um, I think this is really... Oh, thank you for having me. And this Google LASD... Discussion. Oh, wrong side. Google LASD gangs. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we, uh, we, we definitely have a local law enforcement issue here. We talk about this on the, on the show quite a bit. But um, thank you for coming on because this is an informed discussion that doesn't get a lot of attention. And I think that what happened in Del Rio this week, um, 
gave us a prime opportunity to uh, share uh, what's going on with Haitia. Uh, you know, it's just wild to me that we we seem to be just recircling the same, uh, recycling the same problems with with Haiti, with the um, yeah, Haitian it's, government. You know, it's a uh, it's it's a it's a general lack of empathy and lack of humanity towards yeah. a country sort of treated as garbage disposal of capitalism in a lot of ways. I mean, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and bottom five in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, it's it's really when you look at the, the spec of outcomes of the quote-unquote modern world or the Western world, if, you know, say the, the United States and Canada are at, you know, the good end, Haiti is right there at the, at the complete opposite end, and they bear the weight of a lot of countries' choices and a lot of our privileges and cheap consumer products. Indeed.